Today, I'm speaking with Johannes Akva. Johannes is currently the Climate Research Lead at Founders Pledge, where he has been since 2019, and where he advises major philanthropists on how they can get the biggest bang for buck with their climate change-focused giving. Important dynamics around climate change and our response. I think the first thing, like when people come to climate, is like it's a really confusing space because what we're talking about here is like we're talking about a century-long problem. We're talking about four or five kind of uncertain complex systems leveled on top of each other, right? Like socio-technical systems, the climate system, technology, how emerging economies grow. So like a lot of complexity there. And like, I guess what we're trying to do is like understanding like what are kind of the most important mechanisms to understand. I think one thing that I find quite useful to just like frame the overall challenge is kind of frame it as like essentially a competition between two really strong trajectory shaping mechanisms. And we've already talked about both of these mechanisms, but like the first one is kind of like innovation and like technological change towards low carbon technology. Hmm. Like we've, we've seen this with solar, right? Where like essentially the investment of Germany and California, a couple of other small countries, like essentially completely transformed the global picture for solar. So like this is kind of very trajectory changing in the sense that there were like a couple of countries over a relatively short period of time that fundamentally changed the trajectory of like solar over the century. And like by that kind of transformed mm. the emission trajectory of climate quite fundamentally. So that's kind of one piece. And we've seen similar things with electric cars, with wind, etc. Mm. The other kind of big mechanism is kind of a little bit competing with that. And that's kind of carbon lock-in, which is this idea that I think we already alluded to earlier. If you're kind of having uh long-lived assets or infrastructures, stuff like coal plants, steel plants, but also kind of transmission infrastructure for electricity, et cetera. So like you're often having investments that will kind of have consequences for decades and will kind of commit emissions for decades if there isn't retrofitting, et cetera. And those are the kind of two mechanisms that I think if you kind of understand them, like, and kind of how they're playing out, like you feel a fairly useful way to kind of think about what are the most important mechanisms. So it's kind of a race between, I guess, on the one hand, the clean energy generation is getting cheaper. And on the other hand, we're kind of pre-committing now to continue using coal and uh, emitting lots of carbon for decades to come because we're building all of this infrastructure that will make it in future extremely cheap to continue to do that, basically. And kind of the question is, which, which of these effects is going to win? And uh, we want to like try to help the former and uh, reduce the latter effect. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And both of these kind of dynamics have this like I guess the characteristic that they're like leverage points, right? That they're kind of moments mm. in time that can have a large impact through time and space. Those decisions related to those two are much more important than most other decisions. Political action versus lifestyle changes. Yeah, so you mentioned a few different things there. Uh, one of them was, yeah, focus on lifestyle change. And I suppose that, that that's how I often encountered climate change discussion, at least when I was a, a teenager or at college, was about changing the amount of emissions that you have by not driving a car or not taking flights. It sounds like you're, you're, you're not, too, not too keen on that <laughs> as, a, as, a, as, a, as a key focus uh, for, for advocacy. Why is that? So, I mean, that's also how I grew up, right? So like I literally grew up with this idea of like, I need to save water because otherwise the water will run out, like, wasn't climate, but like those kind of things, right? Mm -hmm. Or like I never got a driving license for climate reasons and all of these things. Well, I think it's not so much that I'm not a fan of this. I think like as soon as it kind of only a little bit kind of crowds out your political action, it's not the thing to focus on. I think that's the way I would put it. So like I'm doing a lot of those lifestyle changes myself, but I think ultimately political action in the broader sense is like where essentially everyone listening to this can have more impact. 
And this can be different things, right? This can be voting, this can be protesting, writing your senator. Or, I mean, for me, like donating is really a form of political action as well. Ultimately, the reason for that is because what you can do for your lifestyle changes, even when you're in the US, which is kind of the highest per capita emitting rich country, your emissions are something like 10 tons per year. So like you can maybe reduce this a little bit, but like ultimately, like the most you could do is kind of reduce that. And compared to other things, like compared to other changes you can induce, this is just not that significant. And that's also not how we would solve any other kind of issue. Like we would not solve like crime with saying everyone should just not commit crime, right? We're like, I mean, that's also part of it. <laughs> and we're also having a police and like, we're, we're building a public response to this, right? I mean, just, just to show like that framing matters. I think it's kind of useful to think about like, how do we think about other problems? And like for other kind of large social problems, we would never kind of think we're solving them through like billions of people acting, like collaborating on kind of virtuous actions every day. Like this is just not, not a mode for how we solve other problems. How to act given climate damage isn't linear. Yeah, so I guess like first it would seem like totally reasonable and that was my first idea as well, right? Like the goal is to maximize emission reductions because that seems like the obvious thing to optimize for. But I think the most clear or like a robust finding I guess we have on climate damage is that climate damage is like very nonlinear in expectation, which means that like a world of three degrees of warming is kind of much worse and twice as bad than a world of 1.5 degrees. And like it kind of gets worse, like six degrees is much worse and twice as bad than three degrees. The way that economists usually talk about this is like saying, well, the social cost of carbon is different, right? Because the social cost of carbon is always contingent on a given emissions trajectory. Mm. And that means that fundamentally like avoiding a ton of carbon and like a particularly bad future, it can be like orders of magnitude more important than kind of avoiding a ton of carbon in like a very benign future. So it's kind of this nonlinear damage structure that kind of breaks this at the first instance. And then kind of where it really kind of becomes action relevant, because right now it's kind of fairly academic, becomes action relevant as soon as we think we know something about like what correlates with bad futures. So if we kind of know right now, for example, at Seeker House Father, the climate scientist has said like, we're not in a like four degrees worlds where like renewables have succeeded beyond expectation, right? Like those two things do not go together. Hmm. So we know if we're kind of in a high damaging future or we know in a like, or probabilistically know, like we have like evidence that something is very likely that like intermittent renewables must have failed in some way, right? And that kind of tells us something about actions we can take that are particularly valuable in those worlds, for example, investing in other energy sources, such as advanced nuclear, et cetera. Yeah, I see. So the logic is that each degree of warming is worse than the last and potentially by quite a large margin because we're getting further and further away from what humanity is familiar with and the change is happening more rapidly. So, you know, going from zero degrees of warming to one, you know, maybe humanity can handle that reasonably well in the scheme of things. But going from five degrees of warming to six is potentially, you know, a, a massive problem, uh, much, much worse. Yeah. And so... All I've seen, well, you'd much rather, you know, reduce a million tons of emissions in the hypothetical scenario where we're at six degrees of warming than one where we're at one or two degrees of warming. And so, for example, with the renewables, if it's the case that solar and wind are just going to smash it out of the park and massively reduce emissions and we're just going to electrify transport and use renewables to, to generate, if, if that's the you know future scenario that we're in, 
then like it doesn't matter so much because that means that we're going to be on a low emissions trajectory and a low level of climate change. So really what you want to do or like one approach you could take is to try to imagine what are the scenarios where emissions end up being really high and there's, there's really high levels of warming and what could we do to reduce emissions in those cases? Is, is that basically it? Yeah, that's basically it. And I think just to give an analogy from, I think, another cause area, right? So if we kind of think about, for example, if you think about advanced artificial intelligence, Hmm. I guess there's some futures where like AGI is inherently safe, but that's certainly like not the focus of our effort to reduce AGI risk, right? And that's kind of the analogous case where like there there are certainly worlds like, well, renewables, like we solve intermittency, all of these things are easy, et cetera. And like, we've maybe wasted a little bit of money on hedgy climate philanthropy, like, but we should be very happy about that because like that is much better than like the opposite, hmm. which is kind of piling onto the mainstream response and kind of not being prepared for a, like failure. Why we focus so much on specific degree change targets. This is really, I think, in the realm of speculation, but it, I guess like there's there's two forces here. I think one is kind of really the need to reduce uncertainty, right? Or like the really need to reduce complexity because like generally, like if you kind of entertain like 20 different scenarios, et cetera, you cannot really act mm. politically. So you need to kind of get a common denominator and so like, I think that's kind of the, the cognitive or like, how can you actually make policy work or like not only policy, but also like a wider kind of societal discussion. And then there's the other aspect, which is about like, okay, climate policy has emerged around setting ambitious kind of uh, targets far in the future. So like those targets become very important and then kind of become broken down like politically as, a, as essentially as a mechanism of political force, right? If you follow discussions on like, high-income countries on climate policy like you will often hear like this country has to reduce emissions by this amount by 2030 otherwise we will not meet the paris agreement or otherwise we will not stabilize temperatures at mm. 1.5 degrees like those statements don't really make sense like those statements are kind of calculated from one scenario etc but like this is kind of the way to i guess structure a political conflict space and then you can kind of have the debate about whether you want to meet this target or not but that's i think what's happening Okay, so and, and then it just has this effect that we're then kind of blind to what would be particularly useful in the scenarios where we don't meet those targets. You mentioned that it was, it was kind of taboo to think about the four, five, six degree change scenarios. I think I, I slightly encountered this when doing research for a previous episode. Yeah, it actually just seemed quite hard to find studies that would look at the implicate, like the yeah, the effects of really high changes in in temperatures where we really blew all of, all of, all of the goals. Why is it taboo to look into that? Well, I think it's. I mean, okay, for the really high temperature ones, it's also maybe because they're just like really unlikely or it's also hard to do good science on them. Mm. But I think like the reasons taboo is or like, I mean, the climate community, and this includes like the climate science community, right? Like by and large has the goal to like motivate stronger action and kind of, I mean, saying like we might fail, it's like it's not a very like possible move, right? Like it kind of always has to be about like we shouldn't meet those targets. Like we should not kind of already plan for failure in a way so i think that's kind of um that's the mentality yeah and yeah. and i think also like you always want to emphasize the urgency or the absolute importance of those targets right like mm. i mean what i kind of mentioned in terms of like how the policy debates kind of turn out like the uk needs to meet this target by 2030 like this makes no sense the uk is less than one percent and like 2030 is like less than <laughs> It's only one decade of like a century long challenge, but like that's kind of the, how it's kind of broken down in terms of like being politicized, how it's kind of turned into political action and political contestation. Geothermal energy. 
How about geothermal energy? And as I understand it, there's kind of two different categories here. There's the classic geothermal energy. And then there's this hot rock geothermal, which is where you dig much, much deeper and you can get sufficiently hot rocks almost everywhere if you're able to, to go down far enough. Um, am I understanding that right? Yeah, that's, that's roughly correct. I think there are a lot more, but I think those make sense to distinguish that uh, those two are kind of us. So like classical geothermal, right? It's like very location specific and it's kind of good when you have it, but essentially only available when you have like volcanoes or like very specific conditions. So it's kind of a niche renewable resource. If you like talk about like super hot rock or like what, what, what groups like Clean Air Task Force or Project Inner Space and Satra would kind of work on or kind of supporting uh, the development of super hot rock, yeah, what you're looking at is kind of drilling much deeper and kind of then yeah, injecting water and kind of getting the heat out. Mm. So making like geothermal any, anywhere is kind of the catchphrase here. So like making geothermal location independent, mm. essentially by utilizing and kind of further developing technological advances that were kind of brought about by the fracking revolution in the United States. So we now are much better at drilling. Let's kind of use this for not that for extracting gas, but for kind of um, getting heat out. And I think this is kind of one of these, like a really promising bet. If, if this works, you can kind of essentially generate uh, clean, low-carbon electricity that is also firm, right? That is available 24-7. Mm. And that's relatively energy dense. So you could also do a repowering potentially with this. So like this is a very, like very exciting from an energy standpoint, mm. but like extremely nascent. And like also, I guess, because of the connotation, connotations with geothermal traditionally, right? So like it kind of requires active work to kind of change the perception of geothermal and to kind of build the excitement to like actually try those, right? So like this is another example where like uh, philanthropy can be helpful because it's not rocket science. Like one can do those things, but like one needs kind of um, public experimentation. One needs to drill those wells, etc. Yeah. Private capital will not do that. So you need to make this more likely. And what, like the way to make this more likely, I guess, is through to targeted democracy. What are the reasons why hot rock geothermal, I mean, it sounds really great if we could actually dig sufficiently deep uh, and, it, and it wasn't horrifically expensive. What are the reasons why it's most likely to not work out and not be a fantastic way of solving this problem? Well, I think like the most likely way it would not work out is like if we're not getting our, uh, to me at least, seems like if we're not getting our act together in terms of like making it work, right? Like essentially, yeah. like this requires some progress and material science that requires experimentation, et cetera. So like we want to walk down this technology path and try this out, but this will kind of take uh, sustained policy effort. Like this is something like that will take a decade uh, and will take like significant public uh, investment. Mm. So I think the main uncertainty is like, will this actually happen? So so that's I think the dimension that I think about. Obviously, it could also not work technologically, but like in general, I think it seems like much lower risk technologically than like something like fusion, etc. Because like ultimately, what you're doing is like you're extending a, a set of technologies that you've kind of already developed through the shale gas revolution and applying it to a new context. So this is not like, yeah, this is kind it's, of it's not innovation, but it's kind of, yeah, it's not rocket science. The climate footprint of agriculture. I mean, this is certainly does not receive enough attention. It's also generally hard to decarbonize for all kinds of different reasons. I mean, I think the thing I'm most excited about in this space are alternative proteins as kind of a modular technology that we could scale in the same way that we scaled, or not in the same, but in a similar way, way that we kind of scaled other modular technologies through kind of public investment. Mm. So so that's something I'm quite excited about there compared to other opportunities because yeah, that could work quite well. 
obviously we'll only have effects kind of in the 2030s to 2040s but I, to me that seems all right because methane emissions right now like are also not like i guess on the view that i take not not that important right now okay like not reducing methane this decade but reducing it in 2030s like there's there's less kind of impact cost now yep how does working on these hard to decarbonize industries interact with the issue of emission hedging and wanting to focus on the worst case uh, scenarios or the cases where there's lots of emissions is there is there an interaction there i mean there's definitely an interaction there right so like pretty much irrespectively of what happens like uh, electric cars like will kind of replace like combustion engines etc mm. so like even in, even in the worlds where international climate policy falls apart like the air pollution arguments alone are a sufficient reason to kind of push towards electrification given where we are right now with costs etc mm. i think another kind of prominent interaction there is that kind of hard to decarbonize oftentimes this, or almost always is kind of about energy density mm. and essentially so it's very strongly correlated with like difficult to electrify so in that sense like um if you kind of think about potential breaking points and the climate response like yeah i think it's kind of that's another interaction there yeah okay and i suppose maybe just the obvious one that was occurring to me but i wasn't putting my finger on it is that you know, in the scenarios where we emit maybe a lot more than we expect those might be worlds where it's just we never figure out how to decarbonize planes or shipping or concrete production or steel it turns out to be really hard and so focusing on finding a way to decarbonize those where we might just never get on a trajectory of doing so is more concentrated on the worst world potentially that's exactly right. So like it's a disproportionate share of like future emissions and a particular and unlike unlike bad worlds, yeah. 